1 Corinthians 15, and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for what you've done for the Lighthouse Baptist Church and uh, how you've gifted this church. You gave them a good pastor. You've given them musicians and other folks I've seen working around here and so on. You've given them everything that they need, and I thank you for that. I thank you, Father, for these folk here who are members that you have set in this church. It's wonderful to be set by the Holy Spirit in a New Testament Baptist Church of Christ. I thank you almost every day that I've been setting our church up there. It's a real blessing. Father, I thank you most of all tonight that um, those of us who have trusted Christ have been saved by your grace. The shackles of sin have been broken. We've been delivered from sin. You brought us up out, in a, out of a horrible pit. Set us upon a solid rock and we are thankful for that. I'm thankful tonight for the missions program of this church and uh, for those that they send out to the regions beyond. I thank you that they, the folks here uh, witness, I believe, to those here at home and, and they give in order that they might send missionaries worldwide to preach the glorious gospel of Christ. I pray that uh, this week as they meet, and as the uh, faith promise is received, that every member would participate. I pray that the church would be one as you and your son are one, even in this matter of giving. And uh, I pray, Lord, if it could be your will, that you'd uh, increase the faith promise, that they might always be doing more. Now bless me tonight as I preach. I, I want the preaching to be, as Paul said, his was. I'm no Paul. But he said his preaching was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's what I want mine to be. Not a work of the flesh, but a work of the Holy Spirit. So I pray you'd take me. I have committed my way to you, so establish my thoughts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and uh, our text is going to be verse number 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, note that our text begins with that word, therefore. And the word, therefore, as you know, is connective. It points back to what has already been said, thus establishing a context for us. Now, considering the context, we look at chapter number 15, and we find that Paul dealt with the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He starts with the importance of that resurrection, then he deals with the significance of denying it, and then next he relates how that Christ's resurrection is the hope of the believer and the pattern for the believer's resurrection. And finally he answers the question, what happens to those who are alive 
when Jesus returns? Now, in answer to that question, he says in verse 51 and following, Behold, I show you a mystery. Isn't that a wonderful thing how God reveals mysteries to us in the New Testament? I mean, that, that's just a wonderful thing. We shall not all sleep. Here it is. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of all that I've said, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now look back again at verse number 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now the word mystery here refers to a truth hidden from men in the Old Testament and revealed by God in the New Testament. It speaks of a truth which could not be discerned by men apart from further divine revelation. The mystery revealed here is that those believers living at the time of Christ's return, we believers living at the time of Christ's return, will be glorified and caught up to heaven without dying. Wow. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> be caught up to heaven without dying. I don't want to die. What do you think? I'm morbid. I'm, I want to die. Now I know that when it comes time to die, if the Lord hasn't returned yet, that he'll give me grace. You ever heard that song they wrote for Dr. Harold Seitler's funeral? New grace? There'll be new grace when it's my time to die. I think it says grace not yet discovered, grace not yet uncovered, grace from his bountiful store. Yeah, I had a preacher one time said that uh, he was, they thought he was going to die. But he said, I know I wasn't because I didn't have that grace. He said, a little, a little shaken up. There'll be new grace when it's my time to die. Paul teaches that those of us who have been born anew and who are alive when Jesus comes shall be changed, he says, that is given glorified bodies like unto the glorious resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we shall be caught up to heaven without dying. Now this corresponds exactly with 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. That passage says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. 
For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then Paul says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now then, to verse 52 in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye. That's how it's going to happen. I had a preacher tell me that he heard not too long ago a couple of preachers. Both of them said that this in a moment means that Christ can come at any moment. That's not what it says. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're we're going to be changed. The, The bodies are going to come out of the graves and they're going to receive glorified bodies and we're going to be changed. Receive incorruptible bodies. That'll happen in a moment. That's what this means. Now, we know that the Lord can come at any moment. Yeah, that's, that's taught in the New Testament. You can pick that up in a lot of places. The Lord can come at any moment. It's an imminent return of the Lord Jesus that we look forward to. But this here in a moment means that the resurrection of the redeemed in Christ and the transformation of our bodies from corruptible to incorruptible will happen so fast that we will not be able to detect that anything is happening (laughs) in a moment. You've heard it said that uh, a twinkle of the eye involves light traveling through the eye and being reflected off the retina at the speed of light. I can't remember. Is that 186,000 miles per second? Huh? At the speed of light. I don't, I don't know about all that stuff, but I, but I do know one thing. This retina stuff and everything, I don't, I don't know. But I do know one thing. That what Paul's getting at here is it's going to happen so fast that you won't be able to detect anything's happening. It would be like we're sitting here right now, and then right now we're in Brunswick, Maine, sitting in the auditorium up there. Wow, what happened? We didn't even detect that anything was happening. But even greater than that is what happens when the Lord Jesus comes and they come out of the grave and we're changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we go to be with our Lord. Before I move on, notice Paul's inclusion of himself. He says we shall all be changed. I don't think that Paul was talking about, he expected the Lord to come at any moment. I don't think he was talking about after he dies, he'll come forth from the grave, change. I I think he expected the Lord to come during his lifetime. He was looking for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he never taught that the Lord had to come during his lifetime. But I believe that he fully expected the Lord Jesus to return at any moment, and I believe it was his own personal hope that Jesus would return during his lifetime. Now, verse 53 says, For this corruptible must put on, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. I emphasize the word must. In other words, it's something required. It must happen. It is something essential. It is necessary that we be changed or that this corruptible, as Paul puts it, put on incorruption, 
In other words, it's a matter of you and me being fitted for heaven. We're not fit for heaven in this rotten flesh. We wouldn't be happy in heaven in this rotten flesh. We're not fit for heaven the way we are. It's a divine necessity that we be changed. Given incorruptible bodies like unto the glorious resurrection body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now the idea behind the words swallowed up is that death will be absorbed. Death will be destroyed. And think about this. Death destroyed and we're given incorruptible bodies and every trace of the physical effects of sin will finally be removed. Think about that. Every trace of the physical effects of sin finally removed. That which has all our lifetime plagued us will finally and eternally be removed. Hallelujah. What a wonderful thing. Verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? In other words, death and grave are used interchangeably here. For the Christian, death has been robbed of its sting. David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Death has been destroyed, and only the shadow remains. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I quote, For death in its substance has been removed, and only the shadow of it remains. He said, Someone has said that when there is a shadow, there must be light somewhere, and so there is. Death stands by the side of the highway in which we have to travel, and the light of heaven shining upon him throws a shadow across our path. Let us then rejoice that there is a light beyond. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog, he said, cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Let us not therefore be afraid. We have nothing to fear when it comes to death. If you've been saved... By the grace of God, you have nothing to fear when it comes to death. Nothing at all. Now, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted Christ, you have everything to fear. Everything. You're on thin ice. But I know the Lord Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. My sins have been cast behind the back of God into oblivion. Some idiot said, what if God turns around? Well, his back turns with him then. They're still behind his back, right? (laughs) When it comes to my sin, he's not going to turn around. He's cast it behind his back into oblivion, and I have nothing to fear when it comes to death, and neither do you if you're saved. If you're not saved, you have everything to fear. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 
Paul personifies death as a deadly weapon here. Sin is the cause of death. Death entered the world by sin. But through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, sin and death have already been conquered. Conquered. For this reason, Paul says, but thanks be unto God, verse 57, but thanks be unto God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are victorious through Christ. We overcome because of his finished work on the cross of Calvary. Through faith we have been made partakers of the divine nature, and in Christ we are more than conquerors, the Bible says. How about that? More than conquerors. We are victorious over the world, victorious over the flesh, victorious over the devil, victorious over death, victorious over hell, and victorious over the grave through Christ. More than conquerors. So with all this in mind, we then look at verse number 58, and we find that the great truth of the Christian's victory through Christ Listen, gives great incentive to serve him. That which we can expect in the future, you see, gives great incentive to serve the Lord Jesus Christ here and now. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now I want to relate to you, first of all tonight, conviction. Let's talk about conviction. He says, be ye steadfast, unmovable. What does steadfast mean? Fixed or unchanging. It means steady. It means faithful. It's the same word translated settled in Colossians 1.23 where Paul says, If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Webster said in his 1828 dictionary, not fickle, steadfast, not fickle, not wavering. To be fickle means that someone is characterized by changeableness or instability. So Paul is exhorting the church at Corinth and you and me today to be confident in what we believe. To be confident and settled in the truth. Be unwavering in the truth. Hold to the truth and don't you be moved. Be steadfast, unmovable. I had a man in Pennsylvania years ago where I pastored. Before I went to New England to plant churches. And he sat under my ministry for two to three years. He sat there for Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, special services. He heard me teach one time a series on uh, the charismatic movement. Back when that thing was really sweeping the country by a storm and we who stood on the Bible stood against it, spoke out against it, preached on it faithfully. He came to my office one day, he'd made a profession of faith under my ministry, and been there for two or three years, I said, and he came to my office one day, knocked on the door. I said, come in. He came in, he said, can I talk to you for a little bit, Pastor? I said, sure. 
I was sitting behind my desk. I think I was studying. I had a chair here at the corner of the desk. He sat right there. And I leaned back and we began to talk. And then he announced this to me. He said, I, I wanted to talk to you about something that happened. He said, uh, I was invited to church by a friend for special services. And he said, I, I thought I ought to go. He's a friend and blah, blah, blah. You see, the first thing he did wrong is he didn't consult his pastor. What in the world am I there for? He didn't know about this church. What in the world is your pastor here for? You need to consult him, counsel with him. He didn't know about this church. If he'd have come to me and said, Pastor, should I attend this church? I'd have said, absolutely not. And I'd have shown him out of the Bible, why not? But he said, I attended the church. And he said, then I agreed to go back a second night. And he said, the second night I spoke in tongues. And I said, Mike, I want to show you something. So again, we went through it. For at least two hours, I believe, I showed him from the scriptures what the Bible has to say about this tongue speaking and how tongues are the, the gift of tongues in the Bible, languages, not some, not some gibberish, not some heavenly unknown thing. Well, I, I showed him, I spent that time with him, and when I got done, you know what he said? He said, you're right. He said, I, I see it in the Bible. I, he said, uh, I don't know. You're right, and that's what the Bible says, but I experienced it. Of course you did. You went there and got all whipped up into a frenzy on an, in an emotional high, and you jumped right into it. Like a foolish person would. Now, think about that for a minute. He said, but I experienced it. And he left the church choosing his experience over the truth. That's what he did. I see it, Pastor. That's the truth. He admitted to it. But I experienced it. And he left the church for his experience. He walked away from the truth. Now, Peter had something to say about that very thing. And he admonished us to stand on Scripture over any experience when he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well take heed. In that passage, in Second Peter 1, he speaks of the experience that he had with two other apostles as they saw the glorified majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ on the mount when the Lord was transfigured. Then in light of that, he relates to us that there's something more authoritative than experience, and that is the written word of God. So you go with the written word of God. Don't be moved from the truth by anything or anyone. Not by experience. Not by the trials of life. Not by the natural philosophy of men. Not by the seductive arts of the enemy of your soul. You, you don't allow yourself to be moved from the truth by anything or anyone. Ephesians 6.13 says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. 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 Don't be moved. Stand. Stand on the truth is the point. The word of God. Be like a statue. 
There are statues honoring war heroes in every town of any size across America. You'll see them. I've seen many, many of them in my lifetime. A statue stands tall and firm. There's maybe a doughboy from World War I in brass on top of a granite, uh, a, a granite stand. And it rains and he doesn't move. <laughs> it snows. It goes up in Maine 15, 20 below zero and he just stands. The winds howl and he just stands. I think sometimes that's what Paul's alluding to. We need to be like that. Now there's a statue in Brunswick, Maine. And before you get all excited and get whipped up like that guy did, <laughs> Mike I was talking about, let me say this, because it's, it's a statue of a brigadier general in the Civil War. He was a Yankee. And what I'm saying is this, before I tell you about that, that the greatest general in the Civil War was General Robert E. Lee. Wasn't any one of those northern guys. And General Robert E. Lee might be the, the greatest general that this land has ever produced. One of the greatest in history. And he was a great man. He was a godly man. But it just so happens that this statue is Joshua Chamberlain. It's in our town of Brunswick. Joshua Chamberlain was president of Bowdoin College where I live. He was there for several years, and he was also governor of Maine for uh, four or five terms, I think, back then. He was a great man. He was uh, the only man during the Civil War that was promoted on the battlefield. He was promoted from colonel to brigadier general. But the whole thing I'm trying to get at is not to promote him, but, but this. When Lincoln gave him the Medal of Honor for holding his position on Roundtop, the citation in part said, for holding his position on Little Roundtop against repeated assaults. Now this is what I'm getting at. Satan will attack you again and again and again. He'll come at you from every angle again and again and again. And I could say it 10,000 times. Satan will assault you. He wants to move you away from the truth. But you stand and don't be moved from the truth. You'll suffer repentance. Repeated assaults, but do not move. The faithful soldier is a person of conviction. I have several preacher friends whose fellowship I miss. They used to stand, but they don't stand where they used to on the truth. And so I don't have fellowship with them, with, with them anymore. Some have even supported me in my church planting in the past, but they changed. You don't want to change. When you're standing on the truth, you want to, be, uh, you want to remain fixed, steady, faithful to that which is the truth, the Word of God.
Our beliefs and the great truths which we have learned from God's word are fixed in the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we ought to never let our belief in these truths, our Bible convictions, be shaken. A person who believes one thing this month and another thing the next month is an unstable person. Paul exhorts us to be firm, to be strong, to be confident, to be fixed in the faith. Years ago, my wife and I had dinner with a pastor and his wife in uh, Atlanta. We were there for a meeting. It had to do with Christian schools. I think it was the American Association of Christian Schools. And uh, so they had seating, and they set me next to this guy and his wife. He was an independent Methodist, a fundamentalist Methodist. And so uh, we sat there at the table with them. Now, I was about 25 years old pastoring a church over in North Georgia in Hiawassee up there in the Smoky Mountains. And uh, he was probably 20 years my elder. So as we sat there, we began to talk, and he said this to me. He said that he went to Bob Jones University, a Baptist, And he said, I came out a Methodist. Now, first of all, you weren't anything when you went to Bob Jones University, or you wouldn't have become a Methodist. Don't tell me you were a Baptist. At least you weren't by conviction. You just happened to come from a Baptist church, and there are a lot of people like that. Don't know where they stand. They just happen to be in a church with the name Baptist. And then he said to me, he said, if you'll give me 20 minutes, son, I'll make a Methodist out of you. I wouldn't give him anything. I was 25 years old, and I'd just be coming a Baptist by conviction and King James by conviction. So I wasn't going to give him the time of day, let alone 20 minutes. I didn't want to hear it at all. I knew what God was teaching me, what God was showing me, and uh, he might be able to wrap me up because he was older and been studying 20 years longer than me. So I just put an end to it. I didn't want to hear a thing. I'm going to stand on the truth. I didn't want to hear all his rambling. Conviction. Steadfast, unmovable. Secondly, consistency. It says here in verse 50, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Christian character in an individual demands that that person be consistent. Not only in his beliefs, but also in his life, his manner of living. And here we learn that we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does always mean? Well, it signifies at any time, right? Always. It signifies in every instance, right? In every instance, always. But not only that, here's where some miss it. It also signifies all the way to the end. Always. Not only now, but all the way to the end. Now, at my age, you start to think about that thing all the way to the end. When I turned 60 years ago, that was on my mind. I wanted to be faithful all the way to the end. And it's still on my mind in my 70s. 
I want to be faithful all the way to the end. I want to be faithful during all my senior years. I'm not old yet. I really don't feel old. I sit at home in my uh, lazy boy. And I sit there and think I could do anything. <laughs> Till I get up to do it. <laughs> then I come to my senses. I watch the kids play out in the yard. and I think I'd go out and do that. And I get up and realize I can't. But I, I just don't see myself as old. I feel, in my head, I feel young. My body's getting old, but I feel young in my head. I don't know if I've ever told you, but I had a fella come up to me at Home Depot some years ago. I think I was about 62. He was about 25, 26 years old. I had gone over there to buy a uh, base cabinet for the church kitchen when we were building the church. Uh, it was a, a double sink thing. It was big and it was heavy. And we got it on one of those little trolleys and I wheeled it out to my truck and I was all alone and I tried to get it up on the back of my truck. The men were needing it at the church and I couldn't get it up there. And along comes this guy with, a, with an, orange, an orange vest on, whatever they call him, and uh, work bib. And, <laughs> and he's, uh, he's uh, about 25 or 26, I said. He's a tall, lanky guy, real skinny, just a beanpole. And uh, he had on a pair of those little glasses like John Lennon. And he had a red hair and a ponytail halfway down his back. But he was a Home Depot employee. He was coming to work. And I said, hey, wait a minute. I said, could, could you help me get this thing on my truck? He said, yeah, sure. I said, oh, thank you, because uh, I said, I, I, just, I just couldn't manage to get it up there. He said, of course you couldn't. You're an old man. I was only about 62 years old. He said, you're an old man. I said, I'm not old. What are you talking about? <laughs> he said, you are old. I said, I am not old. <laughs> he said, how old do you think old is, mister? And I said, maybe 95. He said, that's ancient. <laughs> and then he said, you're old. Just face the facts. <laughs> okay. That's not old. It, it was really funny because he had manners. He called me Mr. and Sir and all this. And yet he was so, so uh, brutal in his assessment. I'm not old yet. I don't see myself as old. I realize I'm getting there. I'm not an idiot. I'm getting there. Anyway, I want to be faithful. I want to bound in the work of the Lord all the way to the end. I read about a fella, and I'm, I'm quite positive that it was George W. Truett. You recognize that name? George W. Truett. He was a great Baptist preacher. I think he was born in uh, 1867, and he died in, I think, the 1940s. He preached all over the world. In the late 1800s, he started, and he preached all over the world, South America, Europe, and so on. There are three churches named after him, Truett Memorial Baptist Churches. One's over here in Hayesville, North Carolina, in the mountains. 
That's where he was born, Hayesville, North Carolina. Another one, I think, is in Dallas, Texas, and the third one in San Francisco. But anyway, George W. Truett, when he lay on the bed dying in the hospital, he would sleep a lot. It's his last days. And they told him, the nurses said, when you sleep, you're continually talking. And he woke up one time, and he got real concerned about that. And he asked one nurse, he said, uh, when, when, when I'm talking in my sleep, he said, he's really concerned. Am I saying anything that would dishonor my Lord? And she said, oh, no, Dr. Truett, you're preaching. You're telling people about Jesus. That's what you're talking about. You're witnessing. And I read that, and I had tears in my eyes, and I thought, that's the way I want to be. Always abounding in the work of the Lord all the way to the end, even when I'm not conscious that there's such a time. I'd like to be telling about the Lord. I'd like to be preaching. I want to be faithful all the way to the end. Consistency. And then the last thing, confidence. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen to this. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Confidence. Now this phrase, for as much as ye know, is meant to express the absolute certainty of a thing promised. The absolute certainty of it. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So according to the context, there will be a resurrection. And according to this statement, you will be rewarded. There will be eternal rewards. You can bank on it. You can know that. He said, for as much as ye know, and to know a thing is to regard it as true beyond any doubt whatsoever. So labor for those rewards, which are on the other side. And as you labor, God will bless you here too. Let me inject another thought here before I close by way of application. We understand that with a passage there's one primary interpretation, but other applications can often be made. And here's my thought. You can also know that your labor for the Lord as you minister the word of God, as you give out the gospel and so on, will never be in vain. What I'm trying to say is that your labor will yield fruit. Even if you don't readily see it yourself, it'll yield fruit. Many years ago, I was taught a lesson about this. I had pastored over in the mountains, as I said, Hiawassee, Georgia. And uh, I was there for a little less than two years. I went there 25 years old, excited, ready to stay there the rest of my life. There were 125 people. I loved them. But the three deacons was this old man who 16 years earlier had helped start the church. I didn't know the history when I went there. Came out of another church and helped start that church. And uh, the other two deacons were his son and son-in-law. <laughs> and almost everybody in the church was related in some way. So I found out I couldn't pastor the church because he did. I'd try to lead the church to do something, for example, to take on a missionary. 
the church was all excited about it. They had quite a bit of money in the bank for those days. They only supported three missionaries at $15 a month, and I led them to take on another missionary, and I think we might have jacked it up to 50 And the people were so excited. It was a child of a former pastor. But then the next Sunday they came to church, and he stood up, and he said, we're not going to do that missionarian. What an awful thing. Now the people loved me, but they wouldn't stand against him. They wanted to do this, but they wouldn't stand against him. So he was a pastor, I wasn't. And so I left. And after I resigned, he and his son and son-in-law ran me out of town. But you know what I found out? I was pastor number I was pastor number 11 in 16 years of that church's existence. Apparently they ran everybody else out too. I went there without asking too many questions because it was a professor of mine when I was in school who recommended I go there and he recommended to them that they receive me and he had been there for a couple of years with them uh, but he was just going there. He lived about three hours away and he'd just go on Sunday and do some preaching and go home and that's all they wanted. Somebody just do some preaching and get out of here. <laughs> So I didn't think anything had been accomplished. What a waste of almost two years. What a waste. But Mrs. Mitchell and I were young, and we had the teens. And we built the teen department, and they loved us. And we'd do everything with them. I'd even get down on the grass out in front of the parsonage, and the boys and I would wrestle. Sometimes there'd be three, four, five of them on me trying to pin me. And we moved to Pennsylvania. I'd been pastoring there for a couple of years, maybe three years. And I got a telephone call from Karen, one of the teenagers. She said, Pastor Mitchell, I know what happened to you in our church. And I know how you had to leave and all. She said, I I wanted you to know the impact that you had on the teen department here. She said, I'm serving God I think she wanted to be a teacher, and she's in Bible college. She said, my brother has been called of God, and my other brother, he's serving God. And she said, so-and-so went in the Air Force, and that person's serving God, and she went on. And she said, it's all because of what you did with the teen department, and you're preaching to us, and so on. So I learned a lesson. I thought nothing was accomplished. Almost two years of preaching to the church and two years of preaching to the teams, teens, I thought nothing was accomplished. But God did a work, a wonderful work. And I praise the Lord for it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor will not be in vain in the Lord. Always abounding. And the idea behind that word labor is difficult work accompanied by trouble and problems. I mean, it's really labor. Okay, conviction, 
be steadfast, unmovable. Consistency, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Confidence, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And now, with reference to this, uh, with to missions, don't back off. Go forward. Don't get slack. Do all that you can. Increase your missions giving this year if you can possibly do it. And give by faith. Now, I, I don't believe in people being foolish, and I'm not one of those, uh, like the guy I heard preaching Faith Promise one time, and he said this. He said, uh, you make a commitment, put it on that card, and God's obligated to give you that. I think that's foolish. And he said, if God doesn't give it to you, then you don't have to give it. That's crazy. And then he told stories about one guy went home from church one night in this big church in Tennessee. And he said the guy was so sad because he didn't have his faith promise that week, $5. A young man. And he was brokenhearted and he's walking down the street and he went down an alley and a guy pulled out a knife or a gun or something to rob him. And the kid told him the story, I don't have anything, and he went on. And the guy felt so bad for him, he gave him $5 to give his faith promise. That's nonsense. You just pray. Ask God what he'd have you to do and trust God for it. Commit to it and do it. You see, I I would commit to it, and if I had to go take another job or something, if I had to take some side work to make it, I'd make the commitment I made. And I'm in this thing wholehearted in our church. Wholeheartedly. And I not only give a sacrificial amount, but I also put beside it a plus sign. Anything God will give me, I'll give that too. We need to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in this thing. It's the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.